Well, the theme for our Advent series this year is Awaiting the Promise. And this season of Advent is really a season of waiting, a season of longing as we anticipate the fulfillment of the promises God has made to us in Christ. And on the one hand, we look back as we, as we wait, as we long, as we anticipate. We remember the promises that God had made to send a Savior. We remember that that God has fulfilled those promises in Jesus' first coming, in his birth, his life, death, and resurrection. But there's another sense in which during this season of Advent, we look forward as well. Not just back to Christ's first coming, but, but ahead to the promise of his second coming. We're, we're waiting, not, not just at Advent, but, but throughout the Christian life, we are waiting for God to break into this world once again. And so we find ourselves in a position much like that of of Israel before Christ's first coming, waiting, hoping, longing for God to do what he had promised. And and we just sang about it, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And that's the prayer of churches around the world during this season, come, Lord Jesus, and so today, as we, we think about this theme of awaiting the promise, we're going to be talking about the promise of a coming king. And so we'll be looking at Psalm 2 together. You can turn there in your Bibles. This psalm, the second psalm in the Psalter, is a, a wonderful royal psalm about the messianic king who will come and rule the world, and ultimately a, a psalm about our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let me read for us Psalm 2. You can follow along in your Bibles. It's also printed in the bulletin. This is God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we ask this morning that you would plant your word, this good news about Christ our King, deep down in our hearts. We pray that it would bear fruit, the the fruit of hope, the fruit of anticipation, of patience as we wait for his return. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the holiday season can be difficult for many people. 
And uh, even it seems like even before Thanksgiving uh, gets here, we're bombarded with ads, ads about joy and peace and, and family gatherings and, and gifts and presents and everything's supposed to be, you know, merry and, and bright and, and happy. But if you simply stop and think for a moment, that's not really the world we live in, is it? Um, I was sitting in the barber's chair the other day and, the, and my barber asked me, so is 2021 a great year? And I just kind of recounted to him some of the things our family experienced, and he got real quiet, and then he didn't charge me for the haircut. <laughs> you know, whether you're, you're reading the daily news or you're thinking about the circumstances of your own life, we're confronted with brokenness. That's a, that's a reality for the world we live in, and this is a world marked by sin. This is a world... Uh, pervaded by evil and, and, and heartache. You know, a loved one gets sick and dies, or, or cherished relationships fracture. Um, you struggle to make ends meet. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, the, the cover story for this month's edition of the Atlantic magazine is titled, The Bad Guys Are Winning. And it's all about um, autocratic rulers in various nations around the world who are increasing in power and, and exerting their influence on the world stage. And it, it can feel like the world is spinning out of control, like evil and suffering and death are winning. And this is where Psalm 2 can help us. Psalm 2 answers a, a fundamental question that all of us have asked at some point in our lives, and if you haven't yet, you will at some point. And it's this question, who rules the world? Who rules the world? And this psalm gives a very clear answer. The Lord reigns. The, the Lord God Almighty rules the world, and He exercises His rule in this world through His promised King, the Messiah our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what this, this psalm is about, the, the rule and reign of, of God through His Christ. And, and let me just briefly give you a little bit of background to this psalm because it will help us understand it. Most likely, this psalm was originally a, a coronation song, something sung at the, when a new king in the Davidic line in Israel assumed the throne. It was a part of that official ceremony. Um, but this psalm took on special significance for Israel both during and after the exile. The monarchy had collapsed. There's no king on Israel's throne, and yet they still sang this song. They still prayed this prayer. It, it sustained Israel's hope. It was a powerful affirmation that, that the Lord does indeed reign. Despite all circumstances, despite what the situation in the world says, despite there being no king on David's throne, this psalm held out the hope that God's king, the world's true ruler, would come and set things right. And this psalm can do the same thing for us. It can sustain our hope. You see, we, we know on this side of Christ's first coming, we know the king has come. He, he has taken up His throne as, as Lord of heaven and earth, but His reign is still contested. And, and we can be tempted to, to despair as we look around 
uh, at the world around us as we even see the things that, that take place in our own lives, our own families. Often it does not look like Christ reigns. And this psalm comes to us and it comes, it's designed to sustain hope. It's designed to steady us as we wait for Christ to come again and put everything right. And so this, this psalm, it's made up of four stanzas. If you're reading the ESV, uh, you can see it does a nice job of making that clear in the way the text is printed. We're going to look at each of these stanzas in turn. And the, and the first is verses 1 to 3, which I've, I've labeled evil rages. Evil rages. This, this opening scene here in the psalm in verses 1 to 3, it's a scene full of, of turmoil. There's a, a noisy gathering of, of nations, of kings and rulers. And you could picture something like, like a meeting of the United Nations in, in New York, this assembly of, of the powerful presidents and prime ministers and ambassadors. And, and the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage? The, the nations are agitated they're, they're worked up. It's a picture of, of restless motion, like, like the waves of the sea crashing on the shore incessantly. And he goes on, and the people's plot in vain. They, they rage, they plot, and they scheme. And, and that word plot is actually the same word translated meditate in Psalm 1. It's the idea of talking to yourself. But here in a negative sense, um, the, the nations are murmuring, they're muttering among themselves. So restless motion, um, empty plotting, and there, there's not only turmoil, there's hostility. Look at as the as verse two continues, the kings of the earth set themselves. In other words, they take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Now, ordinarily, nations are are at war with each other, competing with each other. But here, they've made common cause because of a common enemy, and we see their hostility, uh, verse 2 tells us, is directed against the Lord and against His anointed, uh, His Messiah. And that's what that word means. And the reason for their hostility becomes clear in verse 3. We, we hear the nations speak, and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, what is it that they're angry about? What is it that they, they crave? They want autonomy. They don't want God and His Messiah to rule over them. And so, and you notice here, they interpret God's rule as oppressive. It's bondage. It's slavery. It chains them down. And this is really a, a picture, not just of, of kings and rulers, but of, of humanity in rebellion against its Creator. And at the, at the root of our sin as sinful human beings is this desire for autonomy. We, we want to be our own masters. We, we don't like people telling us what to do. Uh, if you've raised children, you, you've noticed this. Almost as, it seems like almost as soon as a child can put sentences together, they begin shouting at their parents, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> it's that desire for Autonomy and, and adults do it too. We just we just do it in a more sophisticated way. 
you know, the, the, the speed limit sign says 65 miles an hour, and so we go ahead and do 75 on the freeway. You know, the first human beings, and we talked about this some last week, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, our parents, they rebelled against God's authority. And that's been the human story ever since. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. All of us as, as sons and daughters of Adam have followed suit. And what has been the result of this rebellion against God's rule? The, the nations say, we want freedom. We want independence and, and autonomy. And what's been the result? And not freedom. Instead, uh, misery. You know, the devil would have us believe that, that God desires to enslave us and make us miserable. But the opposite is actually the case. God desires the life of the world. He created us to experience true life, true meaning, true happiness in communion with him. But instead, we've chosen that path of rebellion. And our rebellion has filled this world with injustice, with suffering, with misery. And so evil rages today. This isn't just something that happened a long time ago in a faraway place. Evil rages. And it's not difficult to see. Just just spend some time reading the headlines. Now, this psalm does something here in this opening stanza that's really a bit um, countercultural at Christmas time in America. This psalm acknowledges the brokenness of the world. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't make excuses for human sin. The psalm reminds us that this world, this this place that we inhabit, is in rebellion against its Creator. Things are not the way they ought to be. Not the way God intended them. And now maybe you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is really a downer. I thought Christmas time was supposed to be the happiest time of year. Um, My spiritual gift might be being a downer. But I'm joking. I'm all for festive Christmas celebrations. I fully intend to enjoy the holidays this year. But, you know, Christmas is a time for joy, but not because the world is okay. It it isn't. The, The shadow of death looms over us, looms over this world. And, and the reason we sing, we sing, we give gifts, we, we celebrate, not because everything is right with the world, but because the light of Christ has broken into the darkness. The light of Christ has, has broken into this sin-cursed world, and, and we rejoice because the light of salvation, the, the light of new creation has dawned in the coming of Christ. And, and we talk about this, we sing about this, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. But at the same time, we recognize that that darkness, it has not been fully banished yet. And so right, us, right alongside the, the joy we experience during Advent and, and Christmas this season, we, we long for the, the full noonday sun to shine. That 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 light that will come at Christ's second coming and drive away the darkness forever. And so I, I want to encourage you this morning during this season, as we as we anticipate that Christmas celebration, as we think about the first coming of Christ, I want to encourage you to, to lean into that that longing for the second coming 
of Christ. You know, you don't have to wear a plastic smile on your face through the end of this month, you know, and pretend that, that everything is okay. Embrace that, that experience of, of joy alongside what one author described as an almost cosmic ache for things to be made right. And so evil rages. And this psalm reminds us that, that God's purposes for this world are, are opposed by evil powers. But that's not the final word. And so the second stanza continues, verses 4 to 6, we, we see that God laughs. God laughs. The, the, the scene in this second stanza, as we come into verses 4 to 6, it, it shifts in the first, there's this noisy gathering of rebellious humanity. And then in the second stanza, we're now taken to a scene of, of heaven and the Lord in heaven. And his re- here's his response to evil's rage. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And so here's this vision of the, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And he's, he's seated. And what that means is he's... He's enthroned. The, this God, the creator of all things, he, he reigns. And notice, he's not worried. Uh, he's not nervous. He's not panicking because of what we little humans are plotting here on earth. Uh, the Lord is perfectly calm. He's undisturbed. He's supremely secure on his throne. You know, humanity shakes its fist at the Lord, and, and the Lord simply laughs. And not because he thinks our rebellion is funny, um, but because it's ridiculous. It's a laugh of scorn and, and ridicule and, and mockery. He, he's mocking human arrogance, you know, human pride. We, these puny little creatures that we are, thinking we could throw off his rule and reign. And, and, and all the little rulers and politicians and, and dictators and influencers of this age, they're, they're nobodies compared to the great king seated on his throne in the place of supreme power and authority. And so God laughs as he's enthroned in heaven, and then he speaks a word of, of rebuke to them. We see it goes on, then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, and, and here's the word of rebuke, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Yahweh's answer. This is his response to evil's rage. It's a person. His chosen king. The one who will exercise God's rule over the entire earth. And and there's irony here. While, While the wicked rulers are are plotting how to overthrow the Lord, he's busy installing his king on earth. And as we read this, um, there is a sense in which it was true of, of King David, of Solomon, of the other kings in David's line. Uh, they, they were indeed chosen and appointed by God through his covenant with David. And, and yet the language here and, and in the rest of the psalm, it, it points beyond them. This king established on, on Zion, God's holy hill, it, it points to great David's greater son, the, the promised Messiah, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, in, in Acts 4, the early Christians, as, as they're, they're 
reeling from some hostility that was shown toward them by, by the religious authorities, um, they, they take up this psalm. They quote this psalm to explain the hostility of Herod, the hostility of, of Pilate and others against Jesus and the church. Um, they quote this here. Uh, the, the Roman and the Jewish leaders, they, they plotted, they schemed, they conspired together to crucify Jesus. They thought they had defeated God's king, but in reality, they were unwitting instruments. Uh, God used them to accomplish his purposes. In, in, in the crucifixion of Christ, God triumphed over evil and sin and death and the devil. And, and then God raised Christ from the dead and installed him as king. And so... Friends, as as we've gathered here this morning as the people of Christ, as the people of the risen Christ, we're not still waiting for Christ to be enthroned. Even now, here this morning, He reigns. And one of the most basic confessional statements a Christian makes is, Jesus is Lord. And when we say that, when we confess that truth, what we mean is, Jesus is King. Jesus reigns now, not just um, over my life, but, but over this world, over everything that exists. And it's true, there's a, there's a not yet element to Jesus' reign, as, as I said earlier. It's, it's not yet visible to all. It's still contested. You know, God's kingdom has come, but it has not yet been consummated. And, and we long for that day, and we'll talk about it more in the next stanza, but, and this is important for us to, to acknowledge and recognize and embrace right now, with all that said about the coming consummation of Christ's reign, He is King right now, right here, today. And what does that mean for us in the here and now? It's simply this. We do not have to be ruled by fear. Because Christ reigns, you don't have to be mastered by fear. You know, the daily news is designed to produce fear. It drives people to watch the program or, or click the link. Um, politicians use fear to win our vote. Um, even I've noticed even some Christian ministries are resorting to fear I came across an ad from a ministry recently that said, they're coming for you. They want to take away your rights. And they was a reference to people of a certain political persuasion. The message is clear. You should be afraid. And many of us do struggle with fear. It may not be those people coming for us, but fear of the unknown future. Fear of all the what-ifs. Uh, fear of not being in control of, of what goes on around us. And, and I want to say that, that God's laughter here in this psalm is reassuring. As strange as that sounds, His laughter is reassuring. He's not shaken by this world's evil. He's not moved. <laughs> God is not up in heaven biting His fingernails, wondering how it's all going to play out. He's calm and he's steady. He's, he's at peace because his king is on the throne and nothing can threaten Christ's reign. 
And, and because of that, we can be calm. We can be steady. We can be at peace too. You know, friends, God's got this. Whatever it is in the world that, that's got your attention, whatever it is in your own life, the life of your family that, that's concerning you, God has got this. And of course, there are situations that call for concern. There are times we're going to be perplexed, times we're going to be grieved, but we don't need to be gripped by fear. And Psalm 2 calls us to, to believe. Psalm 2 calls us to confess that King Jesus is on his throne today. And despite what circumstances seem to indicate, we put our hope in this King. We, we put our hope in Christ. And this psalm calls us to to receive God's declaration here that, that His King has been established on His throne, it calls us to receive it by faith. It's true, even though we can't see it with our eyes. That doesn't make it any less true. This isn't something where we're just pretending is fact. This is truth that we can receive by faith and bank our entire life on it. And so we see in this psalm that, that evil rages, God laughs, and then third in verses 7 to 9, Messiah wins. Messiah wins. And so in this third stanza, now we hear Messiah speak, the the great king. He says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. So he's going to declare the the unbreakable promises that God has made to him. And there's, there's three of them actually. The first, a a promise of sonship. He says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the the today of verse 7 is that coronation day, that day when a new king in in David's line sat down on the throne and and this decree would be recited. The the promise is, is drawn from the covenant promises God made to David. The promises God made to David and his heirs, actually, in 2 Samuel 7. There the Lord says, I will be to him, that is the king, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And So Israel's king in his royal office is son of God. That title was associated with Israel's king. And then later in Israel's history, after the, the monarchy was obliterated, or so it seemed. It became a, a messianic title, in part because of this psalm. And, and you know that in the New Testament, this, this, the words of this promise are applied to none other than Jesus of Nazareth. At, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, God the Father declares, this is my son. And, and those statements are about more than just Jesus' deity as the eternal God the Son. It's about His office as Messiah, His role as the chosen King of the world. Uh, Paul quotes these verses in his sermon in Acts 13 in connection with Jesus' resurrection. And then likewise in Romans 1, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. And so, the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, it was like the, the beginning of coronation day for him. It, it was God publicly declaring to the world that this is the messianic son and king that he promised long ago. And so there's a promise of sonship. There's a second promise of universal dominion. 
God promises to this king a, a kingdom that extends to the ends of the earth. He goes on in verse 8, the Lord, quoting the Lord, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So a, a worldwide kingdom made up of people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, and just as an aside, this is the Old Testament counterpart to the Great Commission we find at the end of Matthew's Gospel. When Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he's, he's drawing on the promise of this psalm of a, a worldwide kingdom that stretches to the, the very ends of the earth. And there's a third promise, verse 9. A promise of really an assurance of comp- complete victory. He says, you shall break them, that is the rebellious rulers and nations, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In ancient Egypt, the the pharaoh would smash clay pots with the names of his enemies written on them. And it was a a symbolic act. Uh, These clay pots would be broken into pieces and they could never be reassembled into a whole pot Again, and it it represented total victory over enemies. And it's the same imagery here. God promises to His Messiah the power to smash all opposition. And it really is a a sobering picture, this vision of Christ as the warrior king. And, And maybe it makes you a bit uncomfortable. We're not really accustomed to thinking about Jesus like this. And, and maybe it even feels to you like it, it contradicts his own self-description as one who is gentle and, and lowly. But these two pictures that Scripture gives us of Christ, uh, Jesus as the divine warrior, as the warrior king, and, and Jesus as the gentle and lowly friend of sinners, they're not at odds. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And it reminds me of what Mr. Beaver said about the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read that series, you know what I'm talking about. Aslan is the great king of of Narnia, a a lion. And and one of the children asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan. um, Is he safe? And, And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And the gentle and lowly Jesus, he says to sinners, come. He says, come, and I will give you rest. And Christ will gladly receive anyone, anyone who comes to him in faith. In fact, he gave his life for rebels. This great and exalted king became a lowly, humble servant, like we heard in the Scripture reading, and gave his own life so that rebels could become children of God by faith. He's good. He's kind. He's merciful. But Jesus isn't safe for those who obstinately resist His rule. One day, this Jesus will come roaring in righteous judgment against all who have rejected His gracious reign. And that's what this psalm is is holding out to us. the, The hope of Christ's victory. 
It tells us the end of the story before it even happens. It's it's a big spoiler right here in Psalm 2. Jesus wins. (laughs) And this is the hope that sustains us now as we go through our pilgrimage in this world. We have this rock-solid confidence that Christ the King will come again and He will be victorious. He's coming to judge evil. He's coming to put the world back in right order. He's coming to restore and repair and heal everything that's been defiled and broken by sin. Uh, He's coming to make all things new. And that's the day we long for when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's not just about uh, Christ's first coming in the past. It's about the future, that, that ache that, that every Christian has deep down inside for the day when evil's rage is forever silenced and the, and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and His Christ. And so friends, hope in Christ's victory. Let, let the vision of this psalm, the, the message of this psalm, get down into your heart and let it shape you. And so the psalm tells us that evil rages, God laughs, Messiah wins, and then in the the fourth and final stanza, verses 10 to 12, we see that the psalmist summons us. The psalmist summons us. So here in, in these verses now, we hear the psalmist himself speaking and really uh, directing his attention to the kings and rulers and nations of the world. And there's an appeal in verse 10, in light of the Lord's reign and the victory of His Messiah, the psalmist says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. That's the responsibility of kings, to be wise, to exercise wisdom in their rule. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, don't go on being fools. Messiah wins. It's a done deal. Don't you see how pointless your resistance is? And then there's an invitation. Verses 11 and 12, the the psalmist goes on, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. The the kiss here is an expression of homage. You know, nobles in the ancient world, nobles of a defeated kingdom, would, would bow down and kiss the feet of the king who had conquered them. It was a a demonstration of submission, a demonstration of allegiance to a new master. And and the psalmist here is is inviting the rebellious nations to give up their rebellion and to become worshipers of the one true God and and loyal subjects of the world's true king. But, But notice there's a warning here as well. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And so like I said a few moments ago, God is patient. God is kind. He's slow to anger. He shows mercy to the penitent. Jesus welcomes sinners. He gives grace to the undeserving. All those things are true. But there's a sense of urgency here. You see, God's patience towards sinners is not indifference toward sin. And there is a day of judgment coming. And God's just anger at injustice and and sin and evil, it will be carried out. 
And when that time comes, this is what the psalm is saying, when that time comes, there's no escape. The invitation to, have, to kiss the Son will have expired. And so the psalmist says, be wise. <laughs> Give up your rebellion. But notice, he, he not only warns, and, and I really love this about the psalm, he not only warns, he woos. The end of verse 12, it concludes with a beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And that word blessed has become just kind of a throwaway word in our vocabulary. You know, I'm so blessed, this and that. Uh, The word blessed here is really the sense of being truly happy. Uh, the sense of, of flourishing and, and wholeness that is really captured in that, that Hebrew word, shalom. And, and the psalm is asking us to consider who is the truly happy person. And the answer is the one who takes refuge in the Lord and His Christ. You know, the, the nations regarded allegiance to, to God's King as bondage, when in actuality it's the only place of safety and security and life as it was meant to be. Christ, this King, gave His life so that all who come to Him might have true life. And the psalm is, is asking you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, it's asking you to consider, what are you waiting for? Why are you persisting in your resistance against this King? You're not going to find freedom anywhere else. You're not going to find life anywhere else. Now, the psalm says, is the time to bow before King Jesus and confess Him as Lord and to know what it means to be truly happy, to be truly blessed in Christ. And so the message of Psalm 2 is that evil rages. Evil It defaces, it distorts, it destroys God's creatures, it destroys God's good world. But evil doesn't have the final word. The ultimate word in human history, the ultimate word in in our individual lives is this. Our God reigns, our King has come, and our King is coming again. And evil will be judged, darkness will be banished, and the world will be made new and whole under the gracious reign of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give Him thanks. Our God and Father, we pray that You would form us into people who hope in Christ the King, people who live in confidence of His worldwide rule and final victory. We pray that it would stabilize us, that it would steady us, that we would live lives of of patient confidence, quiet confidence in Christ, the risen Lord. And Father, would You help us during this season to just to deepen our appreciation for the, the good news that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. We ask all in His name. Amen.